Okay, here is the story of the recording that went wrong and the dumbass cicadas. In recording this episode, Allison was out of town and wasn't able to have access to her recording equipment, so rather than having her record her audio locally, which she couldn't do because she only had her phone, I recorded the Zoom audio, which is notoriously bad anyway. Unfortunately, I made the huge mistake of trying to save the recording to my local portable hard drive, which stopped at the hour mark and thus lost the last half hour, but only of her audio. Luckily, Dalton Hughes is a genius, and when he listened to Trey's recording, he could hear bleed-through from Trey's headphones, which he was then able to amplify, and we were able to enhance as much as we could, and we have managed to mostly recover everything that Allison said in that last half hour. You'll see when you get to the hour mark that it's not quite as easy to hear her. Speaking of being unable to hear things, you may indeed in the background of this recording hear the damn cicadas outside of my window. It is summer in Illinois. I can only do so much with noise reduction, and that is why my audio in this episode sounds like it's coming out of a tunnel, because it might as well be. And because this is recorded from someone's headphones, for once, the heavy breathing you're going to be hearing during those sequences is not me. <sighs> anyway, enjoy. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Vivino Para and I play Tanya Adiola on Class. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the buggy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because we are in buggy. Yeah, yeah. My name is Tony Witt and today we have a sometimes buggy four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. 
There is also our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. And finally, we have a fan who's written more than even I have about Doctor Who, because you saw the website, the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine you would, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them that you are storing them up in Terra Nova, where they can't get burnt by the fireball. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. God, that was a labored one. And as <laughs> usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junker Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wex, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, and Dave Davis. <gasps> thank you very much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the first season of the Tom Baker era with Ian Martyr's novelization of The Ark in Space. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who American Space, adapted by Ian Martyr from the script by Robert Holmes, that aired from 1225.75 to 215.75, published by Target Books in April 1977. As of this recording in August of 2020, this title is currently in print in BBC Books and is available as an unbridged audiobook, 140 pages. Alrighty. Well, we discussed Ian Martyr in some depth way back in episode 8 when we read the first of his books. Uh, well, the first in story order of his books was actually one of his last ones, and that would have been The Reign of Terror. But I'll give you a shortened version of his bio here. Ian Martyr was born in 1944, and his involvement with Doctor Who started back in Barry Lett's time, when Lett's cast him in Carnival of Monsters, a performance that led directly to him being cast as Harry Sullivan. And I've told this story before, I'll tell it again. I think Dalton's the only one who's heard it, though. He was actually the first character I saw on screen during a Doctor Who episode, and I thought he was the Doctor. <laughs> and it turned out it was during a Sunday afternoon showing of Terror of the Autons, and yeah, so I got to the scenes where Harry's being all heroic and everything, and I thought he was the Doctor, and then I realized, no, it's that guy with the scarf. Martyr's aspirations to become a writer eventually led him to adapt The Ark in Space in 1977, a story he actually appeared in. The Target book tells us this happened as a result of a dinner conversation, though it doesn't elaborate. And then he did the Sontaran experiment, his second book, which follows on directly from that story. Almost a year and a half later, he went on to do the Rebus operation, which we will be reading. And we've read almost all of his other books already, except for two. Because we've read Enemy of the World, we've read The Dominators, we've read The Invasion, we've read The Reign of Terror, we've also read his final book, completed just before his untimely death in 1986, The Rescue. Earthshock, we will be reading a good bit later, as well as his original novel, Harry Sullivan's War. In fact, I think the way I have it scheduled, Harry Sullivan's War will be the last of his books that we'll be reading, which is actually very appropriate, in my opinion. 
He is the only actor to play a companion in the original series of Doctor Who to also do novelizations, and he's second only to Terrence Dick's in the number of novels he did, a mere nine to Dick's 64, oh, but still. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, talk about a margin. Yeah. Yeah, 64, the top. Nine <laughs> is the next one. Number two. Exactly. As we talked about before when discussing The Rescue and its edited-down fellatio joke... Martyr believed that these books should not just be for kids, or perhaps even for kids at all, according to former Target editor Nigel Robinson. This is a view he shared with incoming producer Philip Hinchcliffe, which is why many of the books we're about to read will veer into outright horror, and on a very adult level. Needless to say, there is a lot of difference between this book and the televised version, and of course we'll unpack that. The televised version has its own odd history. Philip Hinchcliffe, whom we've discussed before when reading The Keys of Marinus, wanted to have several scripts all ready to go, and when he tapped Robert Holmes, who wrote Terror of the Autons, Carnal of Monsters, and The Time Warrior, he figured they'd be set from the start. Unhappily, they had the odd idea to commission our old friend John Lucarotti to write the story, and since that gentleman had not written for the show since the Hartnell era, he essentially gave them a Hartnell-era script, individual episode titles and all. Unfortunately, Lucarati was also living out of the country at the time and was difficult to reach, and it would have been a lot of trouble to have him revise the scripts fully. So they paid him off in full, and Robert Holmes did the first of many, many rewrites to a Doctor Who script, both credited, as in this case, and uncredited. Although Terrence Dix was a fairly hands-on script editor, Holmes takes it to a new level, and will soon have no problem redoing an entire script, sometimes without even consulting the original writer. This will have both good and bad effects, of course, but for this story, it's all to the good. And there is one scene, I'm going to point this out, and I'm going to have you just guess at it. There's one scene that Holmes wrote that never made it to the air, even though it was filmed, and Martyr restored it to chilling effect in the novelization. So let's see if everybody can guess ahead of time what scene in this book do you think would have been just too much for kids' TV? Not just an individual action, but a whole scene. A scene. Okay. Are we guessing now? Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Is it the extreme claustrophobia with Sarah getting stuck in the tube? Well, that happens... Just not that way. I'm talking about something that we do not see on screen and something that, well... Does that feel bubbling, gushing flesh? Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen on screen either. So that's Ian Martyr being gross. There's Yeah, there's a good bit of body horror that's kind of grossed me out, but that's all I can really think of. Well, I'll let Trey answer the question because he knows the answer. First of all, the body horror happens but just not in a different way. And the way they achieve it on screen is very different. Um, the scene is actually intact in the television version, but they've edited the middle out. And it's the scene where the doctor and Vira encounter Noah and he's in his transformation bit and he's begging Vira to kill him. And you can see it because when you watch it, there's a bit where he's doing the stock, you know, kill me, kill me. And she can't bring herself to do it. And then his head explodes and he goes full weirin. And then... 
the door shuts and she says, Noah and I were pair bonded. The beginning and the end of that scene are there, but the bit where he's begging her to kill him and she can't, that's edited out. And it's a very, you can see when you watch it, there's an abrupt edit at that hmm. point. Okay. So it's extremely abrupt. And even as a kid, I was like, what? happen there and as an adult i found out and reading this book which i think i've read for the first time by the way which amazes me yeah i wasn't expecting it to be there let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover shall we trace since you didn't get to do it last time do you want to do it this time which back cover would you like the original or the reprint? oh dear god <laughs> both <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's split up the duties. Let's have Dalton do the version that we have, and we'll have Trey do the reprint version. Okay. You want me to go first? Oh, yes, please. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At a time in the far-off future, Earth has become uninhabitable. A selection of humanity is placed deep frozen in a fully automated space station to await the day of their return to Earth. Thousands of years later, Doctor Who arrives. He finds things going suspiciously wrong, and the station under attack from the giant worm. Deadly creatures who, in their lust for power, now threaten the future of the whole human race. That is the way that's spelled, isn't it? Worm. Mm. Yeah, it's actually Wirin, but yeah. yeah, there's no way to tell from that spelling. Okay, Trey? Homo sapiens, what an indomitable species that is only a few million years since it crawled up out of the sea and learned to walk. A puny, defenseless biped that has survived flood, plague, eh, famine, war, and now here it is and out among the stars, awaiting a new life. The survivors of a devastated future Earth lie in suspended animation on a great satellite. When Earth is safe again, they will awaken. But when the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry arrive on the Terra Nova, they find the systems have failed and the humans never woke. The Weirin Queen has infiltrated the satellite and laid her eggs inside one of the sleepers. As the first of the humans wake, they face an attack by the emerging Weirin. But not everyone is what they seem, and the only way the Doctor can discover the truth is by joining with the dead mind of the Weirin Queen. The price of failure is the Doctor's death and the end of humanity. Very good. Okay, so they actually quoted the speech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. All right, first impressions. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression when you saw this cover? Looking at the creepy bug thing, I did not expect them to be as uh, imposing as they ended up being. Um, And I definitely was not expecting as much of a delving into their whole uh, metamorphosis, I guess, from from larva to pupa. I don't know. They they didn't look to be as uh, threatening as they ended up. But I also don't really like bugs that much, so uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I was kind of creeped out by them anyway. Okay. All right. Allison, what was your first reaction? Looks like the doctor is uh, listening to the Weirin's album and sort of (laughs) contemplating the music. (laughs) But related to that, I, in the prologue, had difficulty sort of visualizing what kind of creature this was. And I think I did have that difficulty until about, you know, the third appearance. They're totally about a massive leathery body, angular tentacle leg, sharp hairs, scorpion tail. It's not at first like, you know, Mr. Snufflelovagus with a scorpion tail. <laughs> so there was obviously a very complex description that took a, a while to sort of form a visual picture, I'd say. Okay. All right. And Trey, I'm assuming that you actually saw this before you read it, right? Yes. And the thing about Ian Martyr books, I was a kid watching it and reading them. and 
his prose was too complex for me. So we collected the books, but I remember starting Ian Martyr books. And then when I was like in third or fourth grade and being kind of overwhelmed and I would stick with the Terrence Sticks simpler novelizations. And then it wasn't until middle school that I really had read it properly. Ooh, okay. And But I noticed that, that Martyr uses a more advanced vocabulary. He uses a lot of description. And so my initial feeling was it was one that I just kind of put off, that I found it too difficult. And then as kids do when they're kind of naturally reading, once I was ready for it, I was able to read it and I enjoyed the gruesomeness of it. Hmm, okay. So you basically had the same reaction to his prose that I did to David Whitaker's prose because it took forever for me to ever get through the Crusaders. Whereas this, I, I'm almost certain I've never read this book before because it was surprise after surprise. The notes are fairly extensive, even if I didn't get them out in time. Yeah. Reading it this time, I found myself really wishing I had the experience that Dalton Allison have of reading it without the visuals of the TV show, because I think it's actually a better story that way. Yeah, yeah. I wondered if that might be the case, because they wouldn't have had the budget to create what I was visualizing. Uh, with oh, the did. ship and the, the aliens. And I know that this is anachronistic to when the premiered and when it was novelized, but it was so much like mm-hmm. alien to me that I kept visualizing it with alien scale effects. There's a piece of trivia there. Um, I forget what role it was, but it's been reported that Ridley Scott was on set for this story because he had been doing something at the BBC. I would have to check that out, but I'm pretty sure there is a story there. Have you heard that, Tony? Yes, because Ridley Scott worked for the BBC and almost designed the Daleks, in fact, for the original story. And everyone keeps saying, oh my God, wouldn't that have been great? And it's like, well, no. He would have had the same budget as Raymond Cusick did. <laughs> he would have come up with something roughly similar, probably. Um, he Actually, it wouldn't have been roughly similar at all, because Terry Nation's description of the Daleks in the script is notoriously vague. But yeah, he probably would have been on set. That may have been one of his last years at the BBC, but yeah. Because all the, the things are there. There's the It's not just the and being inspired by the wasp of laying the eggs, but there's the whole suspended animation and the deep sleep. And the only survivor of the crew is a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Yeah. Well, and even it mostly takes place on one space structure and then it moves to another one at the very end. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Because she launches away from the Nostromo, doesn't she? In in a ship. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, all the parallels are there. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Because that's interesting that I thought it was just simultaneous creation. You know, certain ideas or times have come, but that's interesting. There is a direct influence on Ridley Scott from this story. He was very aware of it. There may very well be. If I'm thinking about the same story that Trey is, it hasn't necessarily been proven, but eh, it comes from a good enough source that I'm happy with it. And certainly this sort of parallel structure just doesn't happen naturally. (laughs) This isn't Star Trek after all. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have the Roman Empire forming out of nothing on an alien planet. No, it's not that sort of thing. But it is fascinating, and I think you're right, Trey, that we're at a disadvantage because Allison and Dalton have gotten the alien version of the story, and they got it before even the movie came out, too, which is says something for Ian Martyr that he was already making it far grosser, and then Ridley Scott just pushed it that one extra step. <laughs> well, who 
was the person who actually designed the alien, that Swedish uh, H.R. Geiger. Yeah. I I would have liked to have seen his version of the Weirin, but I think we already have. <laughs> so there we are. And by the way, if you're wondering at home why I keep going on about the pronunciation, it's because it is pronounced Weirin, but Martyr, for some reason, gives it an extra R, which is just strange. I mean, that would make it harder to type, I imagine, but there you go. I kind of imagine it's like sort of a weed eater sound, and maybe it's gas power, so that's the sound of when you're trying, you're like pulling the cord, uh, <laughs> trying to start your Weirin. <laughs> trying to start your Weirin? <laughs> which you can get at the hardware store apparently <laughs> yes where's my gas powered wearing weed weapon yeah when i need it it would lay waste to your lawn it would be great yeah it probably would to get back to something that allison said you said that you didn't figure that they would have that much of a budget to do a very good job of this well yes and no what they end up doing with this season is they use that set for Space Station Nerva, as it's called on screen. That's another strange change of Ian Martyrs, but there you go. So you're going to hear the same place called something different when we get to the Cyberman story. But it's used for both of those two stories. So they have a little bit of money to splash out on making it look pretty damn good, and it's really impressive. So do they give the scale of the chamber holding the, the individuals in stasis? Yes, with camera angles and with some, I, I believe it's matte painting, isn't it, Trey? I was going to say, I could see you doing it with matte painting. I'm not sure, It's but it's, it's done reasonably well. I mean, it's not as great as our imaginations are for mm-hmm. the book, but for, a, but for a mid-70s Doctor Who story, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Of course, they would not have had the budget to do what Ian Martyr is doing here on the page, but oh boy, where do we start? Where do we jump into this rushing river of a book? Start at the beginning. Start with the prologue. <laughs> start. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had one of those in a while, have we? Yeah. yeah, true. Yeah, just kind of getting from the perspective of whatever this being is that we don't really know what it is, therefore... We just know that it comes in and it's trying to take over and the systems are all on the kind of autopilot. Mm-hmm. Allison, what did you think of the prologue? I always love a prologue. I figured it would be a while before we understood what was going on. I found it a little challenging to track which creature was doing what. I knew there was just one creature at the beginning, but knew that we would come back to that. I thought it was interesting that on the reprint, that cover blurb that Trey read, that the premises laid out quite plainly on the book cover. And I don't think we had the revelation in the story itself of what was going on in the prologue until about two thirds of the way through the book. Right, right. I think I would have read it in a different way if I understood what was going on. But no, it definitely was was engaging. Very disorienting, but I like a little disorientation in stories like this. (laughs) Well, the opening of the story is, is exactly like that, in fact. Trey, what did you think of the prologue since you have that visual to go with it? Well, I I really like it. I think it actually gives me a better understanding of what's happening than what we actually see on screen. I think one of the things that Martyr does very well is he clarifies and maybe creates a better understanding of the life cycle that we're in. Because when you watch it on screen, it's not really clear what the larvae are and what's being transformed into what. It was always very unclear to me. And he does a much better job establishing 
the arc itself and its features and what everything is. So I like the prologue very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does do that. And in fact, there was there's a stage of its life cycle and there was a word that was attached to it. And I had never heard that word before, even in biology classes. And ah, I didn't put it in the notes. That's what worries me. Imago. Imago, that's it. Just another word for pupa, I guess. But According to Wikipedia, that's not the case. It's something, I, I think it's something between those two stages. And that's just it. Ian Martyr has gone to the trouble of imagining what the life cycle of these damn things are and saying, okay, there's a stage that we need to cover here. And in this stage, they do this. And in this stage, they do this. And here they do that. And it makes a lot more sense, especially that intro. That intro is beautiful and dizzying. It's probably one of my favorite opening scenes of a Doctor Who story ever. And he manages to capture some of that feeling of mystery to it in this prologue. Because, goddamn, his prose style is just phenomenal. The description of space, just calling it the satellite, all the while giving it a personality of its own. Yeah. And the fact that he gives it a prehensile tail, and I'd forgotten that until Allison brought it up, having a kind of a scorpion sting or whatever, it obviously does not have that on screen. <laughs> that oh. would have been impossible for them to, with the suit that they had. It has a little, like, stinger, but it's not like a prehensile tail. And they never refer to it. Right. Yeah. Whereas here, it gets used uh -huh. a lot. As well it should, because there are certain things that are described later in the plot that the Weir and Queen could not have done unless she had something like that. And we get a good idea of why the Great Awakening doesn't happen on schedule. Very good. Now, our three leads. This is arguably the first pure Tom Baker story. And it's definitely the first story to have Sarah Jane the way we know her to be. And Harry is Harry. We're finally getting to see a little bit more of him when he's outside his comfort zone. What do we think of the characterization of the three of them? It's, it's the person who knows the least about Tom Baker here. I think that it's, it seems essential to the characterization that he says and does things that were he written in a more human way, he would just seem like an ass. But it kind of works because you're somehow constantly aware of his not humanness, a sort of offbeatness. It's not quirkiness so much as otherness in a way that I didn't feel like we were constantly aware of that with the previous three doctors and the way they were written. That is true because there are moments when he doesn't notice things that we would definitely notice, like somebody being in pain or somebody going through some struggle. But other times he doesn't notice things that we would expect a human to notice. And, and, and we get the sense that he does notice them. He just has a different scheme of what he considers significant and important at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole thing at the end where Harry and the doctor decide that trash-talking Sarah is the best way to inspire her, <laughs> that's a bravery. Um, actually, I think Harry is not trying to be condescending. He just doesn't know better. I think he's trying to be encouraging. But where the doctor is just, yes, openly, you know, mocking her and calling her worthless and should have not worthless should have, should have known a girl couldn't do something important like this <laughs> it would come off as nearly unforgivable from previous doctors but he seems so other and weird that it kind of works here 
mm-hmm. because he's just operating on some sort of other non-human plane. Like he doesn't really get how humans relate to one another. Of course he does get how humans relate to one another, but he doesn't feel a need to imitate it. I'm not sure I'm explaining that well, but there are moves he can get away with that other doctors would just seem like jerks and he just seemed strange. I'd say that's a scene that comes across worse on the page as far as the doctor's characterization because that is one where the whole time he's doing it on the screen he's smiling there's a twinkle you know exactly he's doing this as reverse psychology yeah and and then afterwards well, we have that on the page too we were told he's actually quite anxious but he's decided this will do the trick and then when yeah. she does when he does succeed and he says i'm so proud of you it's so genuine and so warm that you you you, you forgive it you get it but it is kind of harsh and yeah. But that's what I'm saying is that I, I, I'm i trying to get the magic that people see in him. And that's a scene where I think I got that magic that for other actors or other writings of the doctor, that would have been much harder to pull off, but, it's, but he pulls it off. I would agree. And also Sarah takes it a lot better on the page than she does on screen. Because when she calls him a brute on screen, she she kind of means it. And he actually says, be a brute, don't be ungrateful. I was just trying to encourage you. And on the page, she starts laughing when she realizes, ah, you've conned me again. Okay, fine. And it's a slightly different dynamic between the two of them. They even pass a wink to each other at one point, which I thought was a lovely little moment. But I've never seen Tom Baker and Liz Layden do anything quite like that on screen. Yeah, it it does come off slightly worse in some ways, but it, not so much worse, but different, which is the case with this whole book, to be honest. I thought it was interesting, Tony, that you said, uh, you pointed out that Martyr keeps referring just to the satellite, this very generic term, and then he describes it in such rich detail. I feel like the sort of central theme of the book has to do with maybe sort of a concept of spinning and rotation. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of talk of gyroscopes and orbits, and we have that with the cyclical life cycle of the Weirin mm-hmm. and this sort of attempted cyclical life cycle the humans are trying to alter in a way. And I, I thought maybe it's just a state of mind I was in when I read it. Let me tell you, I was eating for some of the times I was reading uh, this book, and that was a poor choice on my part. Um, <laughs> like the worst possible pages. I put down a four. Um, <laughs> but, but, there is a sort of head spinning quality to it that I thought worked really well with a story that I am inherently not interested in, mm-hmm. but he made it such a, a sort of spinning ride that it that it worked. Mm. I, th- I feel like he gave us that sense of sort of spinning and rotating in space. Yeah, it does have that feel to it, doesn't it? Uh, I'm realizing now that I was getting that subconsciously from it, but I was also overlaying it with the imagery from the story, which again is an advantage that you and Dalton have over me and Trey, because we cannot divorce the images of the story from this book, and it's it's easier for you to actually see that imagery that he's putting in there. What got me about the imagery of the Wirren is, especially when he's describing the larval stage, and at one point it says like it's almost like a curtain of larvae being gelatinous, amorphous, creating and he used the word curtain coming through like descending from the ceiling and when i add that with like the sort of mind control aspect it all became very lovecraftian for me and that was a connection that i made was if i i was trying to think how would i be envisioning this if i hadn't seen it 
And there does seem to be a Lovecraftian element to Martyr's treatment of the Warren. Okay. Um, Dalton, I'm interested to hear your point of view on this, too, because I I know that you're not a fan of horror <laughs> at all. Not a, not a big fan. I, I don't abhor it, but I, uh, I have a vivid imagination. So a lot of times uh, in my youth, I had trouble with nightmares and things really being amped up by my own imagination. Oh. Yeah. There, there's a lot of fantastical nature to a lot of what's going on. And I kind of see what Trey's saying about the Lovecraftian nature about it. Yeah, the idea that these larvae are solid, but also kind of gelatinous, the acidic nature of them, just, yeah, there was a lot of oozing and pussing and grossness about them. You know, earlier when we were talking about Noah's head exploding, I was envisioning, what is it, in Scanners, when that... Oh, yeah the news reporter's head explodes. Um, yeah, mm. just, I'm getting visions of Cronenberg and just oh, just yeah. all kinds of just nasty, uh, you know, the fly. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very visceral and it very much is, again, like we're, we're saying, I could not imagine at the time how this would have been played out on screen. I did go and watch the first episode after I had read it and oh. yeah, and I was very much surprised by how everything was laid out because, as we keep saying, my imagination and what my brain was making of everything was totally different. Ooh. So, yeah, just very, very much uh, kind of primal urges, just like gross. Right. And I imagine you were expecting a much bigger place <laughs> than they actually were able to yeah. come up yeah. with. Yeah, the, the idea in my head had it being a much larger space station. I mean, they kept saying satellite, but I kept picturing something much larger. I mean, if it's going to be an arc, if it's going to be something that's going to hold the future of humanity, I, I imagine mm -hmm. something much, much larger. Um, yeah. I also, for some reason, wasn't expecting it to be orbiting Earth. Oh. Still? I don't know. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, too. <laughs> I think they would be out there somewhere traveling towards, yeah, in stasis traveling towards their next world. Well, that's where the science of this story, the premise, kind of breaks down a little bit because any satellite will not be able to stay that in orbit for that many years. But that's okay. We can kind of swallow that one if we can swallow the idea of alien bugs eating us from the inside out <laughs> yeah just a little bit because you'd be so happy with them eating you from the outside in. oh i know well at least you could see that coming <laughs> i mean seriously yeah. you wouldn't know you'd think oh my stomach's not feeling so well oh well and you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you're like wow i'm really cramping and by dinner time there's a hole in your stomach and <laughs> you're doubled over in agony and you're like what the hell is this and you never know whereas if the bug or the slug or whatever it is comes at you full force you're like oh my god i'm going to be eaten it's slightly more i don't know why that's more comforting to me let's well, just move the, on well the, the main thing being that the vast majority of the people that they were going to devour were in cryostasis so they wouldn't have even known it was only the f that is it's only the few people that were awake on the, on the station yeah you're right because technop dune that is hard to say technop it is 
tech knob. That is not on screen, obviously. In fact, there are many things that aren't on screen, and we'll enumerate them quite soon. But yeah, Dune obviously is not awake when he gets eaten. But the others, yeah. <laughs> Especially Noah. Except on screen, you're absolutely right that this book is far, far more visceral because they can't do that on screen. So what they do instead... <laughs> Trey knows what's coming. <laughs> it's bubble wrap. Painted green. It's green Painted bubble green. wrap wrapped around his hand. Yes. And it actually kind of works. It was made in 75 and in the 80s when I was watching it on fuzzy VHS recording where he taped it on PBS. Eh, you didn't really see it. When it came out on DVD and then most recently on Blu-ray. Oh, girl. Yeah, that's... I look forward to getting to parts two through four then. Well... <laughs> If, just so you know, Dalton, part two of the Ark in Space was the very first episode of Doctor Who I saw in episodic order. So that was my okay. actual introduction to the show. And the cliffhanger of episode two <laughs> is indeed Noah taking his hand out of his pocket, wrapped in green bubble wrap, and looking at it with such horror. And you have to give the actor props He's for this. amazing. At he it. is great. He really is. He is. I used to think of him as a terrible over-actor, and to some degree he is. But you have to be in order to sell bubble wrap on your hand as being some <laughs> horrific, painful infection. Commits to the bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah, he does. That's what made it funny, and I was wondering if Ian Martyr was having a laugh at that, because in a lot of his descriptions of the wear and transformations, he uses bubble a lot as an adjective. He uses it as a verb. So, you know, like, so like, I know he's talking about what was actually bubble wrap. So the bubbling fellash bursted through the seams of the suit or whatever lurid description it is. And on screen, it was basically his body's covered in bubble wrap. And it's, I think, I think that might be an in-joke on Ian Martyr's part. I'm, I'm sure it must be, because Liz Slayton did say that they would pop it between takes. <laughs> so, because it wasn't all that common in Britain at the time. If he's doing that, though, it's working on two levels. One, it's obviously an intro uh, bubble wrap. <laughs> and the second level is that it's causing whoever has seen the show to have that sort of association with it. And it's working on a very subconscious level, too, on this almost absurdist level where you're saying, this couldn't possibly happen. And if you're watching it with a clear mind on television, you're like, no, of course not. That's bubble wrap. And yet it works. It surprisingly does work. Now, the, the actual full wear and suit is a little more unfortunate because it just doesn't have the mobility that it that these creatures have on the page. But yeah, Martyr has kicked it up a whole new level by talking about it the way he does. Oh, dear God. How do we feel about Sarah? Because Sarah gets a rough time in this story, besides being berated by the Doctor just to, you know, egg her on and getting Harry's little encouragement via Morse code, which also is not on screen. But also a rather long phrase he sends her as well. Yes. Yeah. I was about to say, when in her life as a reporter did she learn enough Morse code to know exactly what he was tapping out to her? Yeah, a lot of people do, you know, like a ham radio operation course or something like that. But why would he assume that she would know this? I mean, everyone he knows obviously would know it because they're, you know, sailors, but 
Why would she know? I get why he's doing it. It's because Ian Martyr was there, and you notice that in some ways this is a very Harry-centric book. In fact, he considered doing it in a first-person point of view from Harry, just as the Daleks was done for me in Chesterton's point of view, and then he realized, no, there are too many plot points that happen when Harry's not around, and if those had to be reported, they'd lose their punch. And he's absolutely right. Starts by telling us how handsome and athletic, generally well-built Harry is, but then he, you know, pokes fun of Harry a pretty good amount throughout the book. So it's not just a complete vanity project that I was expecting. No, not at all. He's well aware of that character's limitations. And the nicest thing is, if you're reading Harry via Ian Martyr's books, the three books he appears in, there's significant character development. You can see him moving from somebody who's completely out of his depth and is screaming at shadows and doesn't know what he's going to do next, followed by Santaran experiment where he's a little more grounded in the whole thing, probably because he's on the ground by that point. And then you get to Harry Sullivan's war, and it's a character who has definitely matured, but it's the same character. And that's rare to see in Doctor Who, at least in Doctor Who of the 1970s. These days, a companion without a story arc like that is pretty much a failure, and there are very few that don't have it, but this is a kind of new territory. I like that Harry is written as kind of a big jovial goof, but not completely useless. Yeah. So, for example, he's a doctor. He easily translates the Latin because he would, of course, know a lot of biological Latin and be able to read names like that. He might not be able to sit down and, you know, translate a Latin text, but he would know these these terms. He goes, oh, yeah, that means, you know, the blue whale. And then he <laughs> is kind of upset that he doesn't understand what it, understands what it means. But I, th- I thought it was interesting that a couple of times that Harry provides information, in that case, talking about the blue whale with the translation, and then Sarah later provides, I want to say information, but more an observation in the form of, oh, well, you're saying that they are very much like plants in that way. Or uh, what was the next thing she said, the animal comparison to the life cycle that we're in, in the ship? She talks about a certain form of wasp, doesn't she? Yes, Isn't she yes. The one that she's the one that who thinks, no, no, I think it's a doctor from the wasp, but another natural analogy, but uh, they both have something to contribute, even though they also have no idea what they're doing. I think that's a good balance for a companion. Speaking of Harry Sullivan's qualifications, yes. <laughs> you know where this is going, Tony. I um, sure do. The one of the omissions from the script, which is one of the best and funniest moments for me in Doctor <laughs> Who, is when Vira is asking you know, who the Doctor and Harry is, and she says, you are medtechs, and the Doctor says... My degree is purely honorary, and Harry Hare is only qualified to work on sailors. <laughs> <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> yes. and that lied. We get the honorary part, but we don't get the only being qualified to work on sailors part. And it's such a loss. It's such a loss. Yes, it is. <clears throat> but I'm also <laughs> wondering, and I'd have to review this, um, and he, it seems unspoken, but in the Ark and Space special edition, they do a documentary on Ian Martyr, and he and Tom Baker were very good friends. And Tom Baker kind of alludes to Ian Martyr perhaps being bisexual, but being very closeted about it. Oh. And he doesn't kind of come right out and say it, but it's that was certainly how I came around from it that there was a side of his personality you know about his attractions and and I'd, i i should have rewatched that documentary in preparation for this but if that were true i could see why a closeted bisexual man would even eliminate that line possibly 
possibly. And it wouldn't be too far out of the pale because, um, as many of you may know, one of my side interests is astrology. And Ian Marker was a Scorpio. And Scorpios do have that very strong sexual drive. And I could very well imagine that he would be at least, you know, bi-curious, if not bi-active. Yeah, that line might end up being something of an embarrassment, but I think it's something else going on there. I, I don't discount Trey's theory, but I think there's also something else, which is he takes out some of the funnier bits. There's still funny bits there, and he actually adds a few that are just lovely. But he takes out some of those better jokes. I mean, as you said, Trey, that is an incredibly good joke, but there are a couple of others that are gone too, and it's surprising that they're gone. What did he mean? They're in his mind. Absorb. We shall absorb the humans. Endoparasitism? I'll give you an example. On screen, when they are talking in that scene about the life cycle of the Weirin, and they're talking about how Dune's knowledge has been absorbed by the Weirin, Virus says, You mean Dune's knowledge? It's been thoroughly digested, I'm afraid. Don't make jokes like that, Doctor. When I say I'm afraid, Sarah, I'm not making jokes. And it's this brilliant kind of, it's very Robert Holmes. And I was surprised to see that gone. It's not so much a joke, but it's a lovely little rhetorical turn that's going on with that conversation. And it's not in the book. And there are a few moments like that that are actually not in the book, including, and we'll get there, the way he's rewritten an entire character to get rid of that character's comedic tendencies, which I thoroughly approve of because it does make sense in context in the televised story. Who is he who is he rewritten? He's rewritten Rogan, who I like to refer to as Rogaine, but that's nothing against the actor. <laughs> but he's rewritten Rogan. Ian Martyr's done a very good job of consistently showing these future humans to be cold and emotionless, and when they're put in danger that is outside their categorized jobs, they don't know what the fuck to do. And they seem to know nothing of the 20th century or any centuries before when they went to sleep. As soon as Rogan comes out of deep sleep, you can tell he's a working-class union member of Britain in the 1970s. He's just that character. There's nothing futuristic or unusual about him. Whereas all the other characters, Noah, Vira, and um, I forget the one who gets absorbed that's like there for like two seconds. Libri and Lysa. Well, they all Vira is described as being quite tall and stately and perhaps, if not genetically engineered, sort of bloodline enhanced by eugenics and selective breeding. I guess I imagine that they would all be cast that way. They're not. And well, and that's that's something that I and I'm sure it's because of what's happening. I mean, I live in Wisconsin, so we're dealing with Kenosha mm -hmm. right now. And like I said, you know, I found out some really ugly attitudes from some people who I, you know, was friends with. And 
I was really uncomfortable reading it this time around with the idea that they are so concerned with their genetic superiority and genetic purity. And especially like if this script were to be made now, you would hope that it would be a multiracial cast in the arc. Yeah. But in the televised version and in the descriptions, they're pretty much all white. So when you've got like these white people who've like, we've saved ourselves for humanity. I mean, you could do a really unpleasant reading of this, especially because the Wurin, they're upset because they were colonized by a Earth colonists and Andromeda. And so in a way, the Wirren were the andro- uh, not androgynous, indigenous, indigenous? <laughs> indigenous and the, they were in the indigenous race that had been forced out by the humans. And now they're coming to reclaim and they're, you know, they're portrayed as bad guys. Whether Holmes intended all of this in his original scripts, I don't think so. But I think there is, if you want to do a really political reading of this, this could be one of those stories that could be considered very deeply problematic. But again, I think just because of where I'm in and what's happening in my state right now, I think I'm just a little bit more alert to these sorts of things um, as I was rereading it the other day. But it's something that did strike me, and it, it troubled me a little bit. I picked up on that from the Weirin as well, I, and I thought they were actually going to go somewhere with it. So I was surprised when it just amounted to them being, you know, right, bad right. bugs. Well, interesting thing. If you've read Elizabeth Sandifer's blog about this story and then later about Talons of Wing Chiang, she's actually rather accusatory of Robert Holmes being seemingly anti-Empire, but being very pro-Empire, so that every time you have a stand-in for somebody who has been colonized, they end up being the bad guys. Well, he, he was a police officer, so, you know, you wonder if, I hate to be stereotypical, but that's that's an establishment profession. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. even if you're a good cop, that is still very much an establishment profession. So who knows? Well, they even accused the doctor and Sarah and Harry of being from another colony as well, of, of being regressive. Yes. <laughs> yes. The redneck and, and, you from know, trying colony, to... something like that. Yeah, and, and coming to um, I'd say keep that in mind um, when we read the next book. <laughs> yes, I was about to say exactly <laughs> that, because they have good reason to be fearful. Well, there's that, plus when you get to, it's a bit of a spoiler, but you find some of these other colonists, and in the TV show on that, they speak with South African accents. Yes. But uh, we can save that for next time, but that's, uh, it's, part yeah. of, it's part okay. of a story arc that begins with this story. Yeah, okay. which is something else I appreciate about this story because it does launch us into a four, arguably five story uh, story arc, if you think about it. Is this the first instance of uh, happening? Well, it depends on if you decide whether or not the Daleks' master plan is one story or a story arc. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, each story is kind of more or less self-contained, but this does bring in one of the yeah. key changes. Martyr tries to make this a self-contained story, so it leaves with the Doctor leaving in the TARDIS, even though he says that they'll look at the transmat stuff in Earth. In the televised version, they actually leave the TARDIS on Nerva, and they use the transporter to beam down. And so it actually ends with them saying farewell and the three of them beaming down to Earth. And that's the next story begins. And in a couple gotcha. of books, you're going to see some of those things not making sense because Martyr makes his stories... He gets there by TARDIS, but then the ones after that, they pick up the story as it was on screen. So there's going to be some interesting moments coming up. Oh, God, that's for sure. In fact, I've already started the next book, and the start of the next book is 
absolutely different. And it's because Ian Martyr is trying to bridge continuity between Ark and Space, his book, and this book. And yeah, it's, it's very tricky. And I, and I guess there were like bits and pieces of, you know, characters holding over from previous stories and things like the crystal from Mabellus 3. Yeah. But I guess more is just kind of this is maybe the first time that the stories really have like an overarching thing like I've seen in the newer yeah, stories. Yeah, exactly. And you can see Barry Letts and those two radio plays from the 90s trying to impose that on that last season of Pertwee. I mean, he did have the conversation between the Doctor and Joe about his teacher on Gallifrey, and there's some vague mention of that in the story just before his last one, I think. Mm -hmm. But that's about the extent of it. Let's and Dix are not interested in doing story arcs. They're interested in bringing in character moments that will play out later, like Mike Yates's fall and then rise. So there's that. But here we're getting an actual honest to goodness story arc that if you watched episodes from end to end, you'd have, oh God, now I have to do the math, six and 12 and uh, six and 12. Shit. (laughs) I screwed it up. Yeah, six and and 12 and then four B. 22. Yeah. Well, it's something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say this particular story arc actually won't end with any sort of actual full stop period until the beginning of the next season, but that's for production reasons. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to read these books in that way and think whether or not they're going to work, because you're right, Trey, Ian Martyr has made this a self-contained work, and boy, howdy. Going back a little bit, I thought this was a fairly classic 60s or 70s sci-fi story where we have humans of the future who have attempted to engineer an ideal society but we the I was going to say the mid-20th century readers so it would be the original readers are shown immediately the flaws in that so Mm -hmm. I I asked if everyone was tall like Vera's described being tall because often in that era that's seen as a what an ideal genetically engineered or selectively bred future human might look like even though if we think about it, it can be quite inconvenient in terms of resources to have a society full of tall people with larger bodies to maintain. But we usually have in those stories a very obvious view of how limited the scope of imagination was to the people who engineered that society. And we have a, a, an outsider who is the protagonist of that story who comes in and is treated with disdain by the members of the engineered society but it's actually the person who has the ingenuity from their variation of life experiences to be able to save the day. I don't think we have, I think that's what we have here. I don't think we have any idealization of the society wherein our heroes would be considered sort of genetic miscreants. But that's why I, I agree that I thought that we would go someplace different with the rear end as a conquered and colonized people. But that's right. also relatively common for stories of this era to have someone who has been wronged, a villain who has been wronged, but instead of being treated as being treated as damaged, rather than injured. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a pity that this happened to them, but now they're so twisted by hate that they they retroactively deserve it. Yeah, that is a point. I I think you're right that 
possibly Robert Holmes was going for that story. And it just happens that you can read it as the other because of his own attitudes, even though, you know, he's he's slightly somewhat more woke than Terrence Dix, but not quite as woke as Barry Letts. So there is that. I think one of my frustrations is that I think they're trying to make that parallel with, and because it says like this is a very compartmentalized, regimented society. If you think about like the insect world, you know, you've got your worker bees, you've got your queens, the royal attendants. So I think it's trying to make that parallel, but I wish it feels to me like either run with it more or get rid of it. Like if this was one of my yeah. students and they were kind of submitting this idea, that would be the point. I'd say either do something with the society and make a point of their attitudes and make it a real big thematic part of the storyline. Or ditch it entirely and make these people that we are more invested in that we want to save. Because I think apart from like maybe Rogan's portrayal on screen, I care about humanity in the abstract. But Lyra and Lyset and all of them, there's, there's nothing about them that makes me really care or like them that I want them to be okay. And yeah. that I think mm -hmm. that is a weakness of the story. I mean, there are the humanizing elements that Noah and Vera were a couple of sorts, even if sort of rearranged and this idea that they are ultimately trying to save their people but i agree it's all very formal so yeah pair bonded pair bonded except yeah. when she delivers that line on screen you actually well wendy williams is just a, a wendy williams <laughs> what, <laughs> what what is the name of the actress Trey? i think you're it's... i think it is wendy williams i think it might be but every time i say wendy williams now i think of that Ridiculously obnoxious woman on television. A different Wendy Williams. <laughs> yes, yes. This Wendy Williams is not nearly as obnoxious. Um, she, her portrayal. It is Wendy Williams. It is, it a is Wendy, Wendy Williams. Williams. <laughs> okay. How you doing, Vera? <laughs> oh God, no. I want. I want a director's cut of Ark in Space with Vira played by our Wendy Williams. I want oh, that to happen. God. Well, then we just let the Weirin take the goddamn station, uh -huh. wouldn't we? Because then they'd be get her out of our hair. What bad experience did you have with Wendy Williams? She's a terrible human being. That's all I have to say. Okay, I, I was not aware of that. I just had a vague notion that she would have talked she, she has just horrible, horrible beliefs and attitudes, and I don't care for her at all. So there you don't are. want her to be your med tech, is what I'm hearing. No, God, no. no. She wouldn't have the sympathy or the empathy or even the brains to be a med tech. Alyssa Milano and Wendy Williams bicker over breastfeeding. What about it upsets you? I don't need to see that. Why? Because I just don't want to. It makes me very uncomfortable. Why is it okay to show that picture of Miley Cyrus with two suspenders over I, her I breast? Have no, I have, I have... It's not okay. Breastfeeding is only a particular amount of time. The rest of your life, your breasts are a sexual thing. Biologically, they're not made for sexual things. What? That's what we've done they're to the them. They're the fun bag. All, all over the world. I know. This is not. I know. You're, you're the the not norm. You're lucky the baby's not here. I'd whip them out right here and, and feed them on your show. No. However, the actress who plays her on screen, also named Wendy Williams, is hitting those marks really well by having Vira be very cold at first, but then as she's taken out of her comfort zone, she ends up becoming more and more human as the story goes along. She's one of my favorite guest actresses in the whole series, to be honest, because she's fantastic at this. You do care about her on screen, to some degree. On the page, probably not. Maybe what they're doing is this. When I say they, I refer to the script writers and Martyr. 
um, we have the image of the satellite as literally non-human engineered environment. It's not an individual, it's a, a designed artificial ecosystem. And then we have in this extremely well and tightly engineered environment, we have the Weiran who are purely bestial. Even though they have some technical knowledge and understanding, they're extremely easy. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. As they're described to us, they're all they're all body parts and smells and sounds and extremely biological. And I feel like we maybe have the future humans led by Noah Vera. It's sort of a clearly untenable suspended space between a, a sort of a bestial physical existence of humanity mm -hmm. and trying to turn human society into this very well-designed machine. And they are clearly, as humans, not the slavering beasts, but they also will never have a society that operates in the way a machine operates. I, I could be wrong, but maybe they're trying to maybe they're trying to show a humanity that's suspended between the mechanically designed and the bestial and has tried to veer too close to the to the mechanical and designed. Oh, I see. Okay. That they've lost some of their humanity and compartmentalizing so much, whereas the Weirin are well, in their abhorrence of the of the imperfect and the, the the individual whose existence centers around biology and physical needs, they have become they've attempted to become more like the machine, and that's not sustainable. No, I I think that um, Trey's image of them being as part of a hive is very apt too. It's not so much that they're a part of the machine, but they are trying to become something like a hive mind as far as humans can become. And it doesn't work. It falls apart, whereas part of the reason why the Weirin are so dangerous is because they do. They operate on that level. And as soon as you put human intelligence and human understanding into that, you've got an absolutely fatal combination for humans, because we also happen to be their meat. And that's a terrifying thought. Their meat and their three. It was a terrible joke. Sorry. They're meat and they're three? It's in a meat and three. Oh. Like a meat. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. And it was at this point, dear listeners, that the hard drive went boom. All right, there we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what else strikes you about this story? The fact that when the Weirin eat whatever they're eating... They retain its uh, knowledge ah, okay. and kind of absorb their past life, I guess, in a way. Um, just kind of an interest, interesting from like an evolutionary standpoint, a way of them being able to mm -hmm. thrive and adapt to whatever situations they're presented yeah. with. And that is troubling troubling on so many levels because you get the sense that they may have achieved that sort of near sentience before. I mean, they can remember when the humans were driving them out of Andromeda, for instance. So there's got to be something to that. By the way, that's one of the parts of the story that never made sense to me. Vira takes it as a definite sign that their pioneers made it to the Andromeda galaxy, which is significantly far away. Well, and she's kind of pleased that <laughs> the yeah. other humans succeeded in dominating this other species. Exactly. Kind of a dark moment. But the thing is, even though the sleepers have been asleep for a very long time, 
They'd have to be asleep a very long time for the Weirin to have made it all the way, the Weirin Queen, I should say, to have made it all the way from the Andromeda Galaxy to the Milky Way, to our particular part of the Milky Way, to Earth, to this station that's hanging in orbit above the Earth. Uh, yeah, it's another one of those moments where you just repeat to yourself, but it's just a show I should really just relax. Yeah, I think that's why I considered that the satellite wasn't orbiting Earth, that it was that it was somewhere else in space. Not not thinking too much about the time travel or the the space travel aspects of it, but still thinking if they're in an arc, why would they go back to the planet that was having issues with solar yeah, flares? Yeah, especially since it would be very vulnerable to those those very solar flares if it were in orbit around a planet that was going to be completely destroyed by them, or at least the surface anyway. Yeah, so that's why I kind of thought, oh, they're they're somewhere else in the universe. They're somewhere else trying to find something, or they even when they were considering going back to Earth, I was like, well, how are they? Gonna, I don't know. My I, I didn't think it through. Yeah, that much. and probably Robert Holmes didn't either. But that's fine. It looks like Ian <laughs> Martyr has definitely thought the story through much more than Robert Holmes did because he reportedly, when he decided to novelize this, said, well, you know, there are several logical problems in the script, and I'm going to try to fix them. And he manages to fix most of them. It makes a lot more sense on the page, as uh, Trey said earlier, in many ways. I mean, he's arguably not willing at liberty to make as large a change as saying that they're not actually orbiting Earth. Right. Though you notice no. he doesn't mention them orbiting Earth either. I don't remember there ever being something that says the satellite hung in space above, you know, the blue-green planet or whatever. But in the end, when they're talking about getting back to Earth through the transmat... That's why it surprised me that they were around Earth the entire time. I had also imagined them somewhere out in space. Well, I think they are, because if you look at the very first line of the book in that prologue, out among the remotest planets in faithful orbit through the solar system... The great satellite revolved slowly in the glimmer of a billion distant suns, reflecting their faint light from its cold and silent surfaces. So they are not in Earth orbit. I, I had not caught that before, and I think that's one of the logical problems that he's fixing. That why would you put somebody in a life capsule and shoot it away from a ship and then have it right close to the ship when it explodes? Yeah, <laughs> Martyr's particularly good about that. What else? Anything else? What else do we want to say about this? There's some great prop comedy, not, not even prop comedy, but just props okay. usage by the doctor, particularly at the beginning when the the security system's on and he uses his hat to test it out, which gets burnt. He uh, uses his scarf at one point, which... I was surprised. It says that it gets torn in two, but then later in the book, he uses it to create a cradle <laughs> yes. for Sarah to uh, to jump down he into. Also but, it as a um, measuring device at one point. Yes, he does. Yes, he measures. Yeah, it's this many stripes, thirty centimeters. It, same thing in the beginning when he pulls the cricket ball out of his pocket for mm -hmm. Harry to throw. Everything in that first scene is done on screen. All of that prop comedy happens. <laughs> Obviously, his little rescue net made out of his scarf doesn't, <laughs> nor does the measuring with the scarf happen. That would have been, he does do that in a later story. I, I believe he does that in Pyramids of Mars. He doesn't do that here. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's some lovely comedic moments that Martyr adds to this script that are just 
very good. In fact, I just had one, and now I can't find the damn thing. I had the the bit with the yo-yo at the beginning. He as does well. that on screen. <laughs> and, yeah, you'd expect somebody like Tom Baker to play with a yo-yo, and in fact, Sarah is downright annoyed with him on screen when he does that. It's kind of a. It gives me a feeling of the callback of you know the second Doctor mm-hmm. with his flute, and even the Matt Smith Doctor with the fez, just kind of things that are associated with the Doctor, whether they're used to further the plot, like they are this yeah. one, but they're still inanimate objects that Ian we Ian Marker doesn't seem with. to care for the jelly babies much. <laughs> he melts them all. He melts them down and leaves them behind with Myra, which he does on, he leaves her a bag of them on screen, yes, but they're not melted. It makes a lot of that, in fact, and I enjoy those moments. I just wonder why he just handed her a bag full of melted pieces. <laughs> right. Yeah. I also noticed that Margaret gets rid of what I think is one of the most sexist lines in the story. <sighs> At the very end, the doctor says that Harry should uh, look after the girls. Into the ark! Fast as you can! You too, Sarah! Harry, you go with the girls! He is referring to Sarah and Vira. Vira is played by a woman in her 40s. It's a ridiculous line. He manages to take it out, which I'm very happy about. He doesn't say it as look after the girls, though. Is it women, or...? I don't think he even says that. I think he simply says, in fact, let's see what chapter that's in, because I do have that in my notes. Chapter 8. If you're correct, it's not in there. You won't be able to find it. Well, no, I'm looking for what he actually says. And I came across the line where the doctor shouts, Have you all gone to sleep? <laughs> With the weird of calling on the hall, and they're kind of shocked. He says, Have you all gone to sleep? Cut the power. Yeah, there, there's no specific speech. Uh, it says, The doctor gestured to Harry to escort Sarah and Vira back through the, two, the airlocks into the main satellite. Harry tried to object to deserting the doctor and Rogan at such a vital moment, but the doctor pushed him firmly away. Soon Harry and the two women were making their way cautiously towards the control center where the TARDIS stood patiently waiting. That's exactly so, it. So yeah, there's no line calling no, them girls. No, and I'm glad that Marder does that. I'm also, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of glad that he makes Rogan's sacrifice so rough because somehow it makes it more effective. Yes. It is a horrific death. It is a death that you would expect to see in the 1990s in a Jim Mortimer book. Mm-hmm. It's that level of grossness. There's a sensory aspect of all of it that his use of description and third person limited, just even the bit where Sarah is going first falling under, there's a line that says like she felt invisible hands tearing her apart when she's like being, oh, mystif- yeah. you know, kind of hypnotized almost. And then that whole sort of process of going into suspended animation i found that very evocative and you really get a sense of what it feels like as a reader and other processes like the whole mind trip when the doctor has to connect with the we're in queen's brain you really get you get this wonderful sense of being there as a reader which i think is is quite strong as well sarah's trek through the tunnels you know when she has to squeeze through and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I think all those processes, as well as the body horror, you feel just on a very sensory, visceral level. And I, I think he does yeah. a really good job with that for a novelization. He also does a good job of showing the after effects, because Sarah, when she later hears the word cryogenic, she's 
thinking, wait, that freezing sounds familiar, and it's because her brain has blocked out the very traumatic experience she's been through. And at the beginning of the next book, she very quickly runs away from the transmat circle, remembering the her recent experiences with them. <laughs> so it shows that these characters are impacted by what happens to them, sometimes fatally, but for our companions, they are actually referring to it later on in the story, and that's a breath of fresh air in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, the, I'm, I have the page pull up with Rogan's death, and this, as he released the last clamp, he was enveloped in a deathly chill. The air was sucked out of his lungs, and the blood began to boil in his veins as the docking section depressurized. That That's just... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> and that he's aware of it, and awake for all of it, and actually screams yeah. as he's freezing to death, and then, yeah. and then his body gets melted. Which is yep. what happens on screen, actually, except you don't see that. You just get a lot Dry of... Dry you know... ice kind of foaming over it, and that's... <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is scary enough if you're, like, a nine-year-old seeing it for the first time. Oh, this, this... this one scared the shit out of me as a little kid watching this with my parents. Oh, yeah. Cause we'd it's horrifying. We, we would record it late Saturday nights. That's why we got a VHS, and then we would watch it over Sunday dinner. And it was like a big event because then like, you know, we would get the TV trays out and we would actually watch Doctor Who. And I remember this is one be just being very scared several times. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story. And one of our Goodreads readers will actually echo something that I have always said, which is you never start Doctor Who at the beginning because that's sometimes going to turn a viewer off. If you're going to start them with the show, start them with a particular doctor. And if you're going to start with the Tom Baker doctor, don't start with a robot. Start with this one. Yep. Because this one is the one where the show grows the beard, shall we say. This is when the viewing figures are about to spike. But it's also when the show is about to get incredibly controversial and get some of the most damaging feedback from parental groups that it will ever have. Controversial for what kind of content? The horror, basically. Because even though it's not as visceral as Ian Mar Martyr makes it out to be in this book, it's still pretty scary because Philip Hedgecliffe wants to do a family show that adults can also watch and that older kids can watch and that college students can watch. His approach seems very much like Stephen Moffat's in the new series, like especially in the Stephen Moffat stories that he wrote for Russell T. Davis, um, like The Empty Child or Blink, where let's scare the kids. Um, yes. That sort of. <laughs> so it's still science fiction. But, you know, if you think about like Silence in the Library or Blink, that sort of thing, those are some of the scarier moments that the creepy robots and girl in the fireplace. So like those Stephen Moffat up episodes, those tonally would be the new series tonal equivalent of what we're about to get into. Uh, agreed. Absolutely agreed. And this is just the beginning of it. Speaking of Stephen Moffat, because I for this I reread the re-release and he has that introduction and doesn't really say much other than he really liked this story as a kid and it's one of his favorites. So that's telling. But he makes a really great point that you could do the same story very easily with Hartnell, Ian, and Barbara 
or the 11th Doctor and Rory and Amy, or the 10th Doctor and Rose and Mickey. And he makes a really strong case. Like you could do this with even um, Jodie Whittaker and Yaz and Ryan, Yaz and Graham. You know, there's four of them in that one. But you can see that this story could work in pretty much any era. And I think that's a really cool observation. Oh, yeah. He goes in the Ian Chesterton mode quite a few times. And it's lovely to have that sort of technically knowledgeable companion in the TARDIS again, because it's been a while. We haven't had that since since Liz. So it's nice to have that around again, if only for a while. So is there anything else we'd like to say? You know, I love when they have the female companion around. That kind of worked in a way here because I'm a claustrophobic person. The rather protracted sequence of Sarah wriggling through the tubes and being stuffed multiple times in multiple ways. It felt like her distress was extremely earned by the end. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I kind of grew weary of the fact that she was, of the doctor and his companions and his contingent, the only one suffering like that. Mm. But it, it did feel a bit earned. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's another bit of the story that gives that character so much more agency, that she's the one who realizes that the ship has its own power supply, and she's the one who essentially comes up with the plan of taking the cable through. Much more action of her than we have seen from her. Yeah. And what I like about Martyr's depiction of it is that he also has Sarah kind of second-guessing it and thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't have volunteered for this because it's going to be really rough. And sure enough, it is. And I think that's the earning that you were talking about, that, yeah, that suffering is earned, but then the dividends that come of it, if that had not happened, they would all be dead. And it's lovely to have that. I don't love it when they have the female companion cry and no one else, but she also went through on the page things that no one else went through so it doesn't seem like a portrayal of her weakness it seems like it's pointing out her suffering. yeah pointing out something that we'd all be crying in frustration over if we had to do yeah it makes perfect sense well once again like uh Dalton, i don't generally enjoy horror but it was significantly more horror than we usually see one of the companions go through we see them in situations of danger yeah but not Yeah, well, unfortunately, Sarah is going to become the piss boy for a little while, because if something horrible has to happen to a companion, it's probably going to happen to Sarah before it happens to anybody else. But we'll get there, and fairly soon, in fact. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.66. The reviews from our Goodreads group have been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but please keep them coming because these reviews have been great. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it three stars and says, Stop laughing! We didn't know what bubble wrap was in those days, not in Britain anyway. The weird flesh on screen looks ridiculous. On the page, it's much more visceral, as one might expect from Ian Martyr, which some might view with distaste, but which I quite like. One sequence that bothered me, even when I watched it on first broadcast, was the gypsy legend of the eye retaining the last image before death. 
Complete nonsense, but I can accept a little nonsense for the sake of entertainment. The problem is that on screen, the Doctor actually uses a piece of the Weirin's eye and sees not an image, but a whole video show. Yeah, the, the book improves this by having the Doctor use the Weirin's brain with the line about the Gypsy Legend used as an analogy. Still nonsense, but slightly more credible. And just a sidebar, that scene where Martyr is describing the Doctor aping the motions of the Weirin Queen as she's going through her last moments is just kind of really terrifying. Sarah's journey through the conduits is much more eventful in the book. The television version wouldn't have been able to afford it, and the Morse code bit would have been too slow, and the Doctor's taunting of Sarah to trick her into not giving up codes over well, at least to me. As with Tommy and Planet of the Spiders, I wonder how the exchange looks without the performance aspect that I have in mind when I read it. The Doctor keeps calling her my dear in this sequence, though, which sounds more like the third Doctor than the fourth, which is odd given that the author played Harry Sullivan and was a good friend of Tom Baker's. I would have expected him to get the Doctor's speech patterns right. And Sarah's back. She does lose consciousness, but only because of a mixture of hypnosis, anesthesia, and a lack of oxygen, rather than a lack of spelling salts in the last book. Or so I thought. After her own final close encounter with the Weir and admittedly a good addition to the story, she keeled over on her side in a dead faint just as the Doctor reached her. Ah well, at least this time it's near the end of the book, but I did have to check the cover to see if Terrence Dix had a co-writing credit. And I still can't work <laughs> out what the boning of the Weirin reached a deafening roar is supposed to mean. PDF page 100. I know Martyr's writing was often considered risque, but really? And finally... Michael gives it four stars and says, Whenever I'm asked by new Doctor Who fans for a good starting point to watch classic Doctor Who, I don't point to an unearthly child, but instead to Robert Holmes' classic The Ark in Space. Not only does the story kick off a great run of stories, but it comes from an era that is arguably the most consistent and best in the entire 50-plus year run of the show, classic or otherwise. If you didn't know that Holmes had to hastily create a new script using the already created sets for the space station because another script fell through. Yeah, I forgot to tell you that. That's exactly what happened. Odds are you wouldn't know this during the four episodes of the story. Ian Martyr's novelization of the story is one of his most straightforward, following Holmes' original script and storyline faithfully. Martyr drops a few lines that were possibly ad-libbed on the set or that don't present his character of Harry in the best of lights. He also makes the weird a bit more horrifying than they are on screen. A bit more. And that's saying a bit since the concept of the Weirin is pretty chilling when you think about it. It all adds up to one of the better entries from the target lines of Doctor Who novelizations. A lot of the target novels make me want to go back and review the original story again. The Ark in Space is one that almost demands you immediately watch the story again. Absolutely true. So Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? <laughs> I'm going to agree with Michael and say four stars. The writing for Martyr is, is really well done. The body horror elements, as much as I hate them, are extremely well done. It just makes you feel nasty and disgusting and, and just hate these creatures. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book. I would definitely agree that this feels like a good place to start. We've had some really good stories in the past, but this feels like something that pretty much anybody okay. could enjoy. Allison? Lego 2.75, which is both higher and lower than it should be. I wasn't really interested in the story, and I don't enjoy horror, but the atmospheric were so engrossing that even though it was 
by definition content I'm not interested in, it was still a very, a very experiential ride. Like I said, this, the constant themes of, you know, rotation and tumbling and circular ideas, it was, it, it definitely, it pulled me through a story I wouldn't have thought I was interested in. Okay. And Trey? I'd give it a four star because it does exactly what I think a good novelization should do, but it's not like one of my wow favorites. You know, I try to be, you know, selective with my five stars, but it's it's a good solid four star in the realm of Doctor Who novelizations. It's above average. It goes beyond what a good Terrence Dix would do, which is a three star. And I think just for that... You know, I might even give it a 4.5 because I think just the description and really getting a sense of what it's like being there and being immersed in the story, that I think elevates it. So 4.5. Okay. And I actually am going to go 4.5 as well, basically because this is one of my favorite novelizations, and I'm almost certain I haven't read it before. This is definitely the sort of Doctor Who novel I would revisit because it's just that good. Where it falls a little bit is just in Ian Martyr excising some of those bits that I'm so happy with. And some of the changes are a little clunky, like calling the station Terra Nova instead of Space Station Nerva, but that makes sense if it's something that is an arc and is going elsewhere to establish a new Earth and Technop and all that goings on. But it doesn't take too much away from it. And it's got something that in common with those episodes that are going to be novelized later in the 80s, the Hartnell episodes that we've already read. The author is willing to change what's necessary, make it a better story, make it a good book that stands on its own. You can rarely say that about Doctor Who novels. I mean, they're almost invariably tied to the stories that they are adapting. This and David Whitaker at his best and John Peel, I would say those are kind of the three megastars when it comes to novelizing. Nothing against Terrence Dix, but even when Terrence Dix is at his best, he's not quite as good as this one. So, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're going to discuss another Ian Martyr novelization, this time of The Sontaran Experiment. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. No one has taken me up on this. I don't know why. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. You claim to be med-techs? Sorry? Uh, my doctorate is purely honorary, and Harry here is only qualified to work on the sailors.